I've never really thought about the book of Daniel in connection with the book of Ephesians. Um, but um, Daniel talks a lot in these opening chapters, and I encourage you to, to read through Daniel this week. It's, it's in our bulletin as a recommended reading. He talks about this mystery that is revealed. Remember, he's interpreting the king's dreams. And what we heard this morning was, was this idea that all these kingdoms will rise and fall, but this great stone will come out of a mountain and crush them all, and that will be the kingdom. And that's the same mystery that Paul has revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And if there's one thing to think about, it's, it's kind of a, a difficult uh, passage here because Paul writes this great long looping idea from verse 3 to 14 with all these, it's kind of like a chain of related ideas that doesn't really pause for breath. It's very simple though. It starts with God the Father in eternity past. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ at Calvary and it goes forward into the future in the Holy Spirit. That's the picture here. We're blessing God for, for uniting all things in Christ. So let's turn now to Ephesians. And though we'll focus on 3 to 14, I will go ahead and just begin at verse 1. This is the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in the Messiah as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were in the first to hope in the Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised spirit of holiness, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now as we uh, pray our prayer of illumination found in our bulletins. Our Father... We have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Our sermon title is Blessed to Bless. And that's sort of the structure of this opening verse. Blessed be the Lord God 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Holy Spirit. Three times, trifold, triune blessing there. It's kind of an odd way to talk, and so we need to unpack it a little bit. Before I turn to this text, I want to think a moment about the audience. Who's hearing it? What is their life like? How do they conceive of themselves? And I think we have a little bit of a, of a leg up here. Um, I don't know uh, if you live in the district, if you live in Maryland or Virginia, but I'm guessing that there's some sort of, of D.C. Uh, civic pride, some civic pride for being a Washingtonian, even though no one is from here, right? We, we still have some sense. And, and when, it might be that that pride is greater earlier on and the longer you live here, it might decline a little bit. I don't know. But I do have this specific memory as I thought about Ephesians. I read a lot about uh, the temple of Artemis and the history and the religion and the culture of the place this week, which is fascinating. Uh, Sarah and I, when we first moved to town almost 20 years ago, uh, we used to drive over this bridge in Alexandria. We shared a car on the way to work, and I'd drop her off. She'd drop me off at the metro, and, and that worked. But um, as we drove over this bridge, we got this, a glimpse of the Capitol Dome off in the distance from Alexandria. And those of you who live in the hinterlands, you know what it's like to drive into D.C. and to see the Capitol on the horizon. It's kind of like uh, driving into some of the great cathedral cities of Europe, right? You can see the capital up on the hill, uh, the church, the massive cathedral. And as we go over this bridge, we just sort of develop this little mantra, especially if, if the sun was shining, we'd say, it's another beautiful day in the nation's capital. You know, sort of like emulating drive time radio. Maybe you saw the Capitol Dome this morning on your way here to work. You might not have even registered it. Maybe you live right next door in the shadow of the Capitol or walk past it. Um, if you came from Virginia, you certainly saw all the traffic by the cherry blossoms. So we can just set that aside. But the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, MLK, right? During the Cold War, I'm not sure we use this language so much anymore. The, the President of the United States was often called the leader of the free world. And he lives right down the street. It's kind of cool. It makes one feel a little special to live here. And... Um, it's sort of what makes it important to live and work in this city. Paul spent perhaps more time in Ephesus. It's close than any other city in which he ministered. It's, of course, on, on the, the west coast of Asia Minor, Turkey. And Ephesus at, at this time, in the mid-50s, he was there from about 52 to 55, really only about 20 years after Christ lived. It's amazing. Ephesus was called the greatest and first city of Asia. Modern Turkey. Um, earlier, Augustus had made Ephesus uh, the capital of the Roman province about 50 or 60 years earlier. So, of course, as the capital, it had the governor had all these uh, Roman buildings that had been added on top of the Greek buildings. But the great pride and joy of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis of Ephesia. Uh, we read about this, uh, or we referenced it a little bit in Acts 19. You can read about the riot for all the people that worked in the business of the temple. Now, I had no clue. This temple was actually a few miles outside of town. And it was built 600 years before Paul was there. And that early temple, was it was massive, but it was destroyed. And then it was rebuilt about 400 years earlier. And if you can imagine the Lincoln Memorial, right? Basically a temple shape. But four times as big. Like four Lincoln Memorials stacked around each other with columns a third higher. I mean, you can imagine in the ancient world where you don't have buildings, right? This would have towered over the countryside. 
It was on almost all the ancient lists of the seven wonders of the world. If you're a tourist in the ancient world in the Mediterranean, you've got to see the temple of Artemis of Ephesia. The book of Acts tells us that that uh, was known as, as the birthplace of Artemis, Ephesus. She was worshipped throughout the Greek and Roman world, also as Diana, the, the, the lady of the hunt, right? She was called in the inscriptions we find in Ephesus, and we have perhaps more written inscriptions from the time of Paul, from this whole period in Ephesus, of any ancient city. It's incredibly well preserved. Uh, she was called Savior. Like Jesus is called Lord here, Kurios, she was called Kuria, Lady. The city, uh, in Romans 19.35, uh, the people of the city say, we are the caretakers of the shrine of Artemis of Ephesia. That was their civic pride. And it was said that the, the, the form that was worshipped there was a sacred stone that had come down from Zeus, come down from heaven. So obviously, and, and we can't wrap our heads around this anymore, religion shot through everything in the culture of ancient Ephesus. Um, the temple, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, was actually served as a bank. It was the Bank of Asia, because if you think of uh, laws of asylum, you couldn't be punished if you're in the precincts of the temple, right? No one would steal something from the temple. So if you're wealthy, you stored your wealth in the temple. And there are these massive catacombs and caverns around the temple complex where all the wealth of Asia was stored. There was once when the city of Ephesus was being attacked, and it was about a mile and a half from the temple. So the temple was on the outskirts. And they took a rope, and they strung the rope around the temple, and they took it all the way to the city so the city could have asylum too. <laughs> Not sure how well that worked. So the temple was the cultural center. Feasts, festivals, parades. It was the economic center. Literally, your well-being, your mortgage, your livelihood was tied up in the temple. As well as the religious center. And the gospel of Jesus Christ threatened this. In Acts 19, we read that Christians who had been magicians and worshippers of Artemis, took their books and burned them. We don't need these anymore. We worship the living God of the universe. It's interesting, the gospel didn't eradicate Artemis. Artemis shouldn't have been threatened at all by Christianity, but she was. Because even though there was Egyptian religion, all sorts of different kinds of religion, Christ alone said that you must believe in Christ alone. He made this claim of exclusivity, that there was no need and so he was a threat. So it's important for us to understand that the Ephesians who would have first heard this letter, whether they were Jewish Christians from the synagogue, and there were many of those, or Gentiles, had to turn their backs on all of their civic pride. <laughs> they were probably blackballed, cast out of, of the guilds, the associations, right? They were hated. They were enemies of the state. All of their spiritual, economic, cultural influence was gone. Artemis had protected them. Artemis made them feel important. Artemis safeguarded their life savings, took care of them in times of need, cared for the poor. Who's Jesus? Paul was here for a few years and now he's gone. He's rotting in a prison in Rome. How does Christ help you? What good is Christ day to day? 
You get on the metro, go to work. Work for a boss who might seem like a jerk. Struggle in relationships. What, what practical difference does faith in Christ really make? Can it replace everything? Your savings account, your job, your diploma, your career? Paul wants to be sure from the distance of Rome as he's in prison that the church knows who Christ is and that they, what they have received from Him, how they have been blessed by Him so abundantly and that they have been incorporated into His glorious body and that the grand sweep of human history from before the foundation of the world to its end and history is coming to an end is fulfilled and summed up in the rock, Jesus Christ, the true foundation. In Corinthians, Paul says, what if I fought some wild beasts in Ephesus? And some people wonder if he's talking about the followers of Artemis, right? Because she was the the huntress of the beast. She was always surrounded by animals. We'll close, of course, with the spiritual armor. This was a battle. I think we have an awful lot in common with the Ephesians as much as 2,000 years of history stands between us. And this opening blessing really is calling us, brothers and sisters, to immerse ourselves in the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel, which we may not see, but the eyes of faith possesses and clings to. And the focus here is so much on Christ, as we will see. So, I have a four-part outline. The the first point of the outline isn't really a point. It's kind of an umbrella. So it it really is a three-point outline. Hiding is a four-point outline. But the first point is, is what's going on with this blessing? Like, who goes around like, blessed be God the Father. Like, we don't talk like that. So, the first point is that God has blessed us in Christ so that we can bless Him. That God has saved us to praise His glory. That there's this beautiful... Economy cycle of prayer and praise and blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So these 13 verses praise God. They bless Him for His greatest work, the work of redemption in Christ. As He repeats three times in these verses, verse 6 and 12 and 14, there's a purpose, right? To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of His glory. And in that final climactic position, to the praise of His glory. God has done this so we can sing His praises. This is a very Jewish Old Testament form of prayer. Think of Noah in Genesis. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. As we heard Daniel pray in our passage today, blessed be the name of God forever. Just one little point of application, I'll come back to it later. How often do we start our prayers with blessing? How often do we start our prayers by praising God? Oh God, I have this test. Oh God, I have this boss. Oh God, I need this. I need this. I need this, right? He's our Father. He loves us in Christ. And the Bible, especially the Psalter, teaches us how to pray. It's a book of praises, not because we know how to praise God, but because it teaches us how to praise God among difficulties. Zechariah, who of course was an Old Testament priest, 
when Jesus is born. The song of Zechariah, we'll sing it next week, is a blessing like this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. All the blessings of the God of Israel are focused in his anointed Messiah. This is one thing that God really demands of us. That we acknowledge and give thanks for what he has done for us. That we are grateful. Here's a form of praise and prayer that again is is shaped by the Psalter. And every one of the five books of the Psalter, as I already mentioned, closes with a blessing like this. Psalm 41. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 106, the close of book 4. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And this is why we are singing from the Psalms this morning. Come bless the Lord with one accord. Psalm 134. Be united. We are united in our prayers and praises. Paul will talk about in that in chapter 5, right? We are never more in agreement and on the same page when we literally sing the same songs, of words of a song together. Music is a beautiful, unifying force in the world, and especially in the church. So the first thing to us to understand is what Paul is doing here. He's starting to encourage the Ephesian church in their battle with the beasts of Artemis and the warfare, the riots that are going on because of the Christian church there. He's encouraging them with all the blessings God has given them and that they might bless God for these blessings. Notice one big difference, though, from this prayer of Paul, who was trained as a rabbi, to the Old Testament prayers. They almost always thought, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And what what does Paul say? Blessed be the God and Father of Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit. You notice there I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, because sometimes when we say spiritual blessings, we lose the fact that Paul is telling us the blessings of the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. But the big difference here is that Paul is no longer giving a blessing on a nation of Israel. He's giving a blessing in Christ, which goes to the ends of the earth. It is an international blessing. This is the hallmark of the new covenant. And so as there was a a temple to Egyptian gods, and Greek gods, and Roman gods, and Persian gods in Ephesus, Paul's like, come, there's one true God, come, I see you worship many gods. So it's an invitation Because in the congregation, we're probably people from all over the world. And this brings us to the first substantive point of this blessing. In verse uh, 4, God chose us in Christ to be holy members of his family. The Lord Jesus Christ is the center of this blessing. He's mentioned explicitly 14 times, either with pronouns or by name or as the beloved. And in verse 10, we are told that Christ's saving work has the goal of uniting all things in the Messiah. Now, I kind of changed the ESV translation there. It says, in Christ. But in two verses in this passage, instead of just referring to Christ without an article, the, it uses the article. And I am convinced that that it's referring to the Christ, the Messiah, and really emphasizing that Jesus is the King. We'll get to this in our third point today. Jesus is the royal King, and His coming, which we'll celebrate next Sunday in Palm Sunday, is the pivot point of all history when the King of all creation comes in the flesh. 
The triune nature of this blessing sweeps up all of human history and focuses it on that centerpiece, the great stone cut from the mountain, not with the hands of man, that destroys all human kingdoms, the only eternal king. So we flow, as I've said, from eternity past in the plans, the deliberations, the will, the counsel of the Father through Christ to the Spirit. The Father plans the redemption of Christ from before the foundation of the world. And the Spirit seals and applies the redemption of Christ to eternity future. There's so much richness here, so many profound truths about the blessings we have today in Christ. I'm going to take two weeks and focus on the Father to Christ today and then Christ and the Spirit next week. So I'm going to kind of look backwards today and forwards next week on these same verses. Which is fitting because next week we'll look at the royal king coming on Palm Sunday. But it all begins with God's choosing. Election. Every blessing of the Spirit that we receive today in Christ... We receive insofar as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us before the foundation of the world. And God's choice of His people, His choice of the patriarchs, His choice of Israel, His choice of members of the church in the New Testament is clearly taught in the pages of Scripture, in the Old Testament and New. This is what we in our Reformed Church Joyfully, happily, with Paul, explicitly confess as the doctrine of divine election. Uh, People like to make fun of Reformed people, like we invented this doctrine. (laughs) We confess it. It's a blessing. And this verse, Ephesians 1.4, is famous for its clarity in teaching election. For clearly and powerfully teaching this truth. Now, it's important what it's saying. God chose us as individuals. He didn't choose an idea. This isn't a philosophical abstract. It's not that he chose to define a church by such and such characteristics, by faith, by this, by that. He's not choosing a category. He's choosing us, loving us as individuals in his son, Jesus Christ. We are chosen out of the mass of humanity. And the foundation of him choosing us and not others is entirely in God. There is nothing in us. That's the whole point of saying that it predates our very existence. This is what we call, in the language of our confessions, unconditional election. He didn't choose us because we were lovely. We're lovely because he chose us. He doesn't choose us like a college admissions board because he thinks there's a good chance we'll do well in courses and be successful in life. The proof of this unconditional nature is that is, is the when, when he chose us. And Romans 9, which is a parallel text from Paul, does the same exact thing. It points to a particular time when God made his choice, before those chosen were even created. Paul writes in Romans 9, This means that it is not the children of the flesh, those who live by their works and performance, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. This time next year I'll return. Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of choosing, His purpose of election might continue, 
Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. You see, that's the whole purpose for God electing us. So that we would know for certain that we don't bring anything to the table. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. God's election before the foundation of the world proves that it's not based upon our merit. In fact, the exact opposite is told here, right? God chooses us so that we could become holy and blameless, which implies what? The clear implication is that He foresees us as members of the fallen mass of humanity. God chooses from fallen humanity. And this is what makes the work of God's redemption in Christ gracious, which is one of the great themes here, right? It is the glory of His grace that is on display, the riches of His grace lavished upon us. This language of wealth and abundance really, again, ties to the abundance of the bank of Asia, the temple of Artemis, full of all the wealth of Asia, right? No, no, no. That's not riches. God's grace is riches. If there's a condition... It's that God chose the weakest. (laughs) If there's a condition in view, it's that He chose those who could in no way pretend that they deserved to be chosen. 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. The things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are not proud because of the doctrine of election, brothers and sisters. We are humbled by the doctrine of election. God makes us holy and blameless by a work of redemption. The purpose is to be holy and blameless. And that end was known from the beginning. The guilty condemned sinners dead in their sins and trespasses, as Paul will say in chapter 2, would be set free from death and corruption. Washed, cleansed, purified, as Christ has purified the church. It's interesting, there were priestesses of the temple of Artemis. And we have inscriptions of in Ephesus that list the various uh, priestesses of Artemis. Uh, they were virgins, probably about 13 or 14 years old. Uh, these were young ladies um, before they were married. And there's been a little bit of a debate whether there was a, a, a prostitution, a cult of prostitution there. Um, my New Testament professor, uh, Steve Baugh, does not think this is so because he's read every, every inscription ever discovered unearthed in Ephesus. And when you read about all of these, uh, uh, these priestesses, the virgin priestesses, um, it, it's kind of like I'm from Southern California. So it's sort of like the Rose Bowl where we have the queen of the Rose Parade in her court. All of the virgin priestesses were like children of elite Romans. They were people who could afford to buy the fancy dress and to buy their way into the cotillion ball. You see, being a member of the temple elite was about power. It was about status. It was about wealth. That's not what the church is about. God loved you for who you are. Not for what you had or what you could do for Him. And this language of choosing doesn't stand alone here. We read in the following line, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Some people say, well, what's the difference between election and predestination? And there's not a lot. They they kind of work in parallel here. He's emphasizing through word variety and repetition. But the the word to predestine kind of has its roots, and you don't want to overemphasize this, but determining the boundaries of a property... And putting out boundary stones. And 
it determines a boundary. And so, in this sense, God determined not only individuals, but everything about the outcome. This is where he starts to talk about the reason we were predestined to be God's children. To be loved in Christ. God in love predestines us to be blessed in his beloved son. He loves the son. Not often in the New Testament is Jesus called the beloved. But he is here. And he loves us. Adoption. We don't have time. It's a very rich New Testament category. But you know one of the greatest early Roman emperors was Augustus. And he was adopted by Julius Caesar. You Roman historians all know that, right? But when Augustus was adopted as Julius Caesar's son and heir, and when there was that triumvirate, no one, he was sort of the sleeper. He was the dark horse because he was the youngest one and there were these other powerful people. But he ended up uh, becoming the great uh, creator, ruler over the Pax Romana for many years while Christ was born. And he was named, he was adopted by Caesar which resulted in him inheriting Caesar's name, so he became Caesar Augustus, Caesar's estate, so all his wealth, and the loyalty of Caesar's legions. Adoption was often about maintaining uh, the family line. If you had a business, you would adopt, you know, in a modern context, uh, a successful son who could rule and govern your business if you didn't have any children. Clearly, this is exactly what's in view here when Paul's talking. In him, in the anointed king, we have obtained an inheritance. We are princes, princesses, predestined to receive, to inherit all of the privileges and status of Christ. God's own beloved son. We're members of the royal family. Just the verbs here pile up. He blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. Blessed again. Redeemed. Forgave. Lavished grace upon us. Made known to us. United all things together in Christ. Obtained an inheritance. And saw to it that we would hear and come to believe in him through the spirit. All of this glorious chain of events was in God's plan. And it's founded on his power and might. Which brings us really to the second point. And to shift a little bit. The language here that I just really briefly want to look at is God's redeeming work is unfolding according to plan. The climax that has been reached in Christ is exactly as God determined it. It's in all wisdom and insight. It's the mystery of His will according to His purpose, according to the counsel of His will. I recently, uh, I've put on a few pounds. I recently went on like a very heavily restricted diet. I've been a bad guest at lunch at Richard's house. I said, Richard, I can't eat any carbohydrates, you know. So he was very kind. He served me a salad. But so I had a plan. I would go on a diet. It's just a long one. I got a long way to go. But all that's to say, you don't care about me. The whole point is I had a plan and the goal was an outcome. And like, you know, I'm, I'm 12 days in and I looked at the scale today and there was a positive outcome. And it's like, Yes! Like, something I wanted to do happened like I wanted it to. It is so rare. Think about it. Think about life. When does this happen? Think about the Greek deities. Think of Artemis. Think of Zeus. They're constantly come here mucking around, you know, putting on their little costumes, doing their things, like having children with human parents. 
And nothing ever goes right. It's a constant battle with the deity and the fates. Where are the fates? They're out there. The whole cosmos is turning outside of the God's control. They're subject to chaos. And these were the gods that pretended to deliver you from chaos. (laughs) They couldn't do it. You know, I just wish I had, you know, a million dollars in my 401k. Then I would have peace of mind, right? I just wish I had a job of tenure. Then I'd have peace of mind, right? I just wish that, you know, I had the perfect spouse and we loved each other. And and I'm not talking about my spouse. This is all hypothetical, right? Like, then, then we would never fight and everything would be perfect. There's no, there's no peace or security in any of those things. We live in a world of chaos. My spouse wishes she had a perfect husband too, believe me. Contrast here, Paul is saying, you have an inheritance. You have what everyone wants in Christ. And you can't find it anywhere else. This book of Daniel... He takes Nebuchadnezzar down to the nub, right? You're going to go run around with the beasts. Your nails are going to grow long. You're going to have your whole Howard Hughes moment, you know. You're going to go crazy. Because God's going to teach you a lesson. That this kingdom you built, you didn't build. And you can't keep. Daniel and Paul are very similar. He's revealing a mystery. That all things hang together are summed up in Christ. Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his thing comes out and he realizes that the Lord is the true king over all kings. And Nebuchadnezzar prays this prayer. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. According to among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor. I bless the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We too should rejoice with Daniel, with Nebuchadnezzar, with Paul. Blessing and praising the God of heaven. Who holds all of the chaos of our lives. Our death, our disease, our tornadoes, our earthquakes in his hand. And this really brings us to the third point. I'm going to land this thing. There's a lot in this text, right? But all of God's blessings are summed up in the Messiah, King Jesus. At the center of God's plan, at the very center of his blessing. This isn't about philosophy. This isn't about the will of God and history past. It's about Christ Jesus, who we have seen with our eyes and touched and beheld. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for the administration of the fullness of all time, all eras, to sum up all things in the Messiah, the royal king. The things in heaven and things on earth in him. Again, this is where I think Paul shifts the emphasis not to Jesus Christ, which had come to take on a title or almost a name. He's called Christ, right? To Jesus the king. He's the Messiah. The work of Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection is the central axis of all of human history. Many of the Greek philosophers saw time as an endless cycle of recurrence. Going nowhere, purposeless, seeking to escape it if they could by escaping the body and the flesh. But Christ in the Christian gospel revealed that human history has a goal. It is aiming toward a Sabbath and a rest and peace. The Messiah is the pivot of this. 
Jesus is the king. Paul preaches Christ crucified, which uh, the Greeks just made them pull their hair out. Again, they had gods hiding in human flesh. Jesus was God and man, perfectly united in one person. Not just the appearance of a body, not a costume. A human body, a human soul, so he could suffer and die in your place. The historical event, the cross of Christ in the empty tomb, Paul proclaims barely 20 years later in Ephesus. 20 years ago, I was driving over that bridge talking about another beautiful day in the nation's capital. That's how close Paul was to the Christ. This word we find here, the summing up of all things, all things being built up into its head, it's a banking term. As you might think, you math geniuses out there, sum up. It would have been used for summing up the accounts, for bringing a list of figures down to one final bottom line. And the great bank of Asia in the temple of Artemis of Ephesians would hear here that Christ is the sum of all accounts. And the word has its root in this idea of Christ as the head. And we will read right later in this chapter, later in chapter 2 as well, that He is the head of the church. All things are summed up in Him. We are His temple, built as living stones. Not Artemis, but Christ. Our foundations in Christ are deep and rich and abundantly pour and flow over us. And they transcend the might and power of this age of our world city. So, Ephesus was about the year 600, destroyed an earthquake, the temple fell. The city kind of meandered into mediocrity. The, the Goths burned the temple and it destroyed it. And then Ephesus moved to a little town uh, where the Turks, the Muslims, had a little fortress on a hill nearby. But they lost the temple. One of the ancient wonders of the ancient world was lost. Four times the size of the Lincoln Memorial. No one knew where it was. And from the 13th century, probably earlier, to today, to the 19th century, 600 years. It's just a rubble field. And when they found it, it was under 18 feet of dirt. (laughs) They had built the temple on a bog. Partly because like the fresh springs were often ancient worship sites. But they thought, because there were a lot of earthquakes in Turkey, lo and behold, they had an earthquake in Turkey, right? They thought that the soft soil, this was early geoengineering, would protect the temple during a time of earthquake. Over a course of hundreds of years, it swallowed the temple. It buried the temple. The Capitol building is not going to stand. Imagine that dome. Under 20 feet of dirt. Jesus' kingdom will stand. The rock carved out of the mountain. With no human hands. We are his brothers and sisters. He's invited us. To his heavenly throne room for a feast. Let's pray. God we praise you. We get so lost in the dirt. And the muck. And the filth of this world. That we forget your kindness. And your blessing towards us. And so we do want to pause today and bless you for what you have done in Christ. And pray that you will strengthen our faith with your spirit, with these words spoken by a poor servant, and, and with the words of Scripture that stand forever, and with the bread and the wine where we can touch and taste and 
know our Lord intimately as he feeds us and strengthens us. Bless all these things in Christ's name we pray through his spirit. Amen.